Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Hi everyone, we are back with the next episode of the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. Good to be with you, I'm your host, Adam Johnson. Today's discussion is with Mary Merlino. Mary is the Rare Concierge Patient Services Manager at Global Genes. I'm fortunate to have connected with her on some recent meetings focused around the upcoming Global Genes 2022 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. Along with a couple of other rare disease patient advocates who are also parents, Mary and I will be speaking on a panel focused around parenting while rare. You'll learn more about this exciting event in our conversation And you'll also learn about Mary's story, including how she came into the rare disease space as a patient and as an advocate. Please enjoy this conversation with Mary Merlino. All right. Hello, Mary. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining me here on the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. It's great to have you on board. And I'm ready to jump in and get rolling. We've got lots to talk about. You ready? I am. Let's go. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, before we get too far, Mary. I just wanted to see if we could check in with you and get a little bit of information about about you, your background, your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Currently, I work at Global Genes, so I'll put that out at the very beginning. And I was diagnosed in 2014, and I'll tell you a little bit about that story. But I'm originally from Massachusetts, currently living in Maryland, and In addition to Global Genes, I'm also the co-founder of Maryland Rare, a organization that serves the community in Maryland for the rare disease community. So this is a new endeavor that I've started. Exciting. I like that. Yeah. So Maryland Rare, how did that kind of come about? You know, it's interesting how that came about because the more I was advocating and learning about advocacy for the rare disease community and realizing what the states need. And usually what's ideal for the states is to have a patient organization, a rare disease advisory council, as well as a rare disease caucus. Those are the goals to make the state powerful for being able to enact change for the rare disease community. So during some of the meetings I've had with legislators through the Every Life Foundation, their Rare Across America program, and also the Rare Disease Week, I met this other woman and we were talking and we were shocked to find out that Maryland didn't have a patient organization. Uh, We have NIH, FDA, we're this close to DC. It seemed crazy to us and it just didn't make sense. So we just did it. So (laughs) we kicked it off last year and it's been building and it's happening. And 
in some ways I describe it as we're flying the ship while we're building it or <laughs> the plane, I should say. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I think that's how it is with so many things in the rear space, right? Like you go and you're looking for things, you're shocked that it's not there. And then it's like, well, let's build it. Let's do it. Right. Let's jump in and go. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the things I love about the rare disease community is that you get to that point. You're like, okay, fine. Let's go. Let's make it happen. I appreciate how, how you did jump in to, to do that because I know that it's it's a lot of work. We're just kind of starting that process of getting some discussions here in, in my home state of Idaho, some other fantastic advocates in, in considering getting a, an RDAC set up, the Rare Disease Advisory Council. And there are there are lots of hoops to jump through, lots at play there. But, you know, again, it's another one of those instances where if you don't do it yourself, it's probably not going to get done. Really similar to the reason why I started the Parents is Rare series on the, on the podcast here was because I was really hoping for some sort of a community connecting with other parents in the rare disease space when we are the patient ourselves. And, and um, at the advice of of others, I, I finally jumped in and, and did that. So, um, you know, I commend you and your colleagues there for, for starting up the Maryland Rare Initiative and exciting to hear that. Hopefully, you know, can continue to make some big waves and I'll have to be in touch, Mary, about how, how things went for you as we try to navigate a similar process here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Happy to. And we already had one great accomplishment where we partnered with or worked with the Every Life Foundation to get some newborn screening bills passed. So it was, you know, again, jumped right in, but we feel pretty good about that because you, you just have to. And I'd be happy to share any knowledge and chat about it anytime. That's outstanding. Congratulations. Well, I, I love that, man. That's that's great. And it gives me some hope, too, as we move forward. It'll be there'll be some ups and downs, but we've got that kind of that mold out there. And I'll definitely take you up on that offer to chat about it down the line. So, Mary, in terms of the, you know, continuing the introduction, I know that um, you've got your your family life at home. You tell us a little bit about your your daughters and, and your your family life and then you know, maybe that'll lead you into how rare disease has impacted you and how that showed up in your life. Sure. Well, I am the daughter of two fabulous girls. They um, are now they're adult, young adults. My youngest just graduated college this year. And then I have one two years older than her, who is she's living in California. The younger one is living in New York. And I am happily divorced. <laughs> I know it's a tricky conversation to have sometimes with people, but I'm a single person living alone with my disease because they, you know, don't live near me, but we get together as often as we can. Yeah, you got coast to coast representation there in the family. I know. If I only had the money to live bicoastally, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. My next question for you, Mary, is is how the, the rare disease kind of came into to being for, for you. When you know, when did that stuff start happening? Notice your symptoms, your your diagnostic odyssey as a as I call it. How did that pop up and where were you with your kids uh in, in that stage? How old were they? Well, the first occurrence that something was going on my kids were seven and nine years old and I was visiting my sister who lived in California and I collapsed and I came to with the EMTs staring at me and my sister looking terrified and my husband at the time as well was there and I had collapsed unknown reason I wasn't sure what had happened got you know went to the hospital spent a good 
almost a week there doing a bunch of tests. And they said, yeah, something's not right with your heart. And I did a treadmill test, which was crazy that I couldn't do it because previously I was super active. And actually my, my background is in sports medicine and personal training, athletic training, and, and, you know, that type of thing. So I was always super, one of those super active people. So when I, they said my heart didn't work, it didn't make any sense at all. So the thing that I think people might relate to is I had one of those experiences. They did a lot of tests. They didn't find anything. So they were going to release me from the hospital with no answers. And I said, but I'm flying from LA back to my home. And at that time, my home was in Switzerland. And I'm at that point, I was flying with my two children alone. And I'm like, my heart just went out. I don't know what happened. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll give you a Valium. You'll be fine. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, you want me to fly alone with a seven and nine-year-old on a transatlantic flight with a Valium (laughs) and I'll be fine. Okay. No, thank you. Yeah, I'll pass. That's just, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just one of those absurd stories that you often hear in the rare disease community about the medical care that sometimes we get. So I ended up back in Switzerland and within a day I was back in the hospital and a similar experience where they did a bunch of tests, couldn't find anything, sent me home. I couldn't walk to the bathroom. And so I went to another hospital and that's where they told me I needed a pacemaker. And The funny thing about that is, of course, they're saying this to me in French. So I'm having this conversation going, no, you don't understand because a pacemaker in English is, and they're like, no, you don't understand. You need a pacemaker. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay. So they implanted my pacemaker, which I called Vivian. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Thank you. The name means full of life. So I'm like, okay, she is my new best friend. So I had Vivian and I had Vivian for a good seven years while I still didn't know what had caused it. So I ended up moving back to the States and got a new cardiologist and he was baffled that there was not a more intense pursuit into trying to figure out what caused all of this. So he was doing lots of tests throughout the years. And then in 2014, my health started to decline rapidly. I couldn't understand what was happening. I couldn't teach any of the classes that I had previously taught. I didn't know what was going on. And it got so bad that I had to wear a external defibrillator vest because they thought that my heart was going to fail at any moment. And I was also meeting with all the heart transplant doctors within the four hour radius of where I was living at that time in New Jersey. So this was where I am. And I'm like, this is crazy. So eventually my doctor said, you know, he wanted to try one more test. So I ended up getting a lung biopsy and they discovered that I had sarcoidosis. And sarcoidosis is an inflammatory disease where groups of cells come together and create granulomas. And those granulomas attach to any system in your body, inhibiting the blood flow and function of those organs. And it can you can get it anywhere in your body. And mine was focused mostly in the heart. And I have it also in my lungs and lymph nodes and other places. But basically, it severed my AV node in my heart and I was my heart was failing. 
So with this diagnosis, I got an upgrade. I got an upgrade to a biventricular pacemaker defibrillator. And then six months later, I ended up having a cardiac arrest in my kitchen. I was about to drive my daughter off to a friend's house. And Vivian the second, because by this time I had my second one. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Shocked me. I got that shock and I came back. And it was just amazing to me because what I feel, and this is the most important part of it, is I feel like my diagnosis saved my life. Because had it not been for the diagnosis, I wouldn't have got the defibrillator and I wouldn't be here. So I consider all everything after 2015 to be bonus time. Yeah, my goodness, what a journey. I mean, yeah. And that's really interesting, too, because one of the things that I'm always curious about for folks as they, you know, navigate all these challenging, difficult times, these rough waters, these, these you know, incredibly challenging aspects in their lives. I I always wonder when you do get that diagnosis, did it change things for you? Because in a way for me, it was helpful. I got my diagnosis, figured out what was going on, but that was it. And for you, it's really interesting for me to to hear. And that, that perspective is really, uh, you know, interesting for me to consider where, you know, you say that that diagnosis really saved my life. So important to dial in because you never know what might be able to help once you do find out so important that we get those pieces of information. Oh, exactly. And that led to, you know, somewhat of the work that I do and and what the focus is, is I'm like, that was crazy. So when the first incident happened seven years beforehand, had I been diagnosed, then the disease would not have progressed to the point that it had in my, you know, I wouldn't have had such a level of permanent heart failure damage. So yeah, it, that's why I'm all about like, let's shorten that diagnostic odyssey for everyone. Yes, please. Right. <laughs> I know it's nuts. So yeah, that that's pretty much the, the beginning of that. And at that point, my daughter, let's see, my youngest who was with me in the kitchen, poor girl, mm-hmm. she was so 15 years old. Yeah. And that was a horrible experience for her. I feel so bad as a parent. You're thinking, Oh my God, like what, what have I done to this poor child? Yeah, exactly. Well, mine wasn't, it wasn't that type of an episode that I had for the first time that my kids saw me fall and go through some really challenging and difficult symptoms that popped up for me. But I thought, you know, a similar thing, like, my goodness, how are they going to process this? And what's this going to mean for them? And it's some of the most difficult components for me to process even even now my kids were three and about nine you know when I when I first got my diagnosis and those symptoms really started to ramp up and I know you said yours were seven and nine at that first juncture there man it is such an emotional roller coaster for me even to this day and I yeah I can relate I can relate in in some aspects to how that might have been for you and how you're feeling about your kids and how they were feeling. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, your kids, similarly, it's like they don't know a dad who's, you know, they probably, maybe the older one can, but that, you know, their memories are mostly going to be based on you as dad, as a patient, and they're not going to know that previous person. And it's a, it's sad in, in a lot of ways and that this is, is part of their lives. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really tough. It was the it was probably the hardest thing for me to swallow other than recognizing, hey, I've got this progressive disease that has introduced itself very rudely, might I add, right? Like, no, thank you. Well, you can stay away from me. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's it's here and it's 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 part of me. And, and that's how it is. And you're exactly right that, you know, my my, you know, three year old now, six year old, he, he doesn't know. He doesn't remember some of those things. My daughter you know, she she does remember back to some of the times when I would run and, and chase them and, and play or I would bring her into work with me when I was teaching in the elementary schools or at the universities and she would get to come to my office or those types of, you know, she remembers those things. And, and we've got a lot of those memories. So for her, you know, I always wonder about how she sees that transition and how, how challenging and difficult that is. And she was right about that age that your daughters were when you first started having some of those symptoms pop up, Mary. And and I was curious with that along those lines, do you remember, Mary, how the discussion was like either that, you know, first time when, when you had first Vivian or or even second time when they're a little bit older for the for second Vivian, which was my grandmother's name, by the way, I understand more of the name behind Aww. it, which I appreciate now. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, full of life for sure. But how, how are those conversations with your kids? You know, it's a really good question because it's a difficult topic to bring up, especially for children at, at a young age. It's like you want to give them information they can handle, but at the same time, you don't want to overwhelm them and you don't want to scare them. You want them to be safe. That's you want them to feel safe and that you're okay. And it was really difficult because it was, it was just kind of slaps you in the face. There was no avoiding it. I was in the hospital. I was attached to machines. The doctors are saying I'm living with heart failure. My kids were old enough at that point. They were 15 and 17 Mm-hmm. after the cardiac arrest to Google whatever they wanted to about yeah, the disease yeah. or what it what it was. So you need to be truthful and you need to be straightforward. But it, I would say it's a series of conversations that you have. And I, for a lot of it, I gave them some information and just kept the door open and let them know if they have any other questions, want to talk about it. I'm happy to do so. It's such a hard thing because you also know that at that point, your children are protecting you. Yes. They don't necessarily want to share their fears and concerns about you because they don't want to upset you and they don't want you to feel bad. So it's this weird balancing act that you're trying to protect them. They're trying to protect you. And this big, you know, elephant in the room is always there. And so, yeah, I think information is power. I'm a big fan of science and technology and, you know, education. So we talked a lot about it at different stages. And it's still now we, you know, as adults, they sometimes have questions, but now actually they're more, um, they get concerned about me and they monitor me and they are always keeping an eye. And I don't like that. I mean, it's fine. I love it in some ways, but it shouldn't be in their life. They shouldn't have to be concerned about me. Totally. This should not be something they have to deal with. Right, right. Yeah, it's those seemingly contradictory feelings and emotions that are coming up, right? Where you're like, man, I, I've got some wonderful girls here, right? Like for me, I've got this wonderful daughter, wonderful son. They're so empathetic. They're so caring and kind. And 
they they could still demonstrate those areas in other ways. I wish it wasn't necessarily because they have to check in on me that I'm seeing this side, right? Like, not that they're not like that other times, right? But like, to your point, it shouldn't be like that. But but it is. And it's just this continual battle for me, too. So I thank you for sharing that, you know, that side of things, Mary, it's important. And I, you know, it's helpful even for me, and I'm sure for many others that'll be able to listen into our conversation later on, and recognizing, you know, that hey, they're not they're not alone. And all these, you know, difficult thought processes and, and, you know, trying to trying to figure out and navigate all these different emotions and conflicting thoughts. And boy, it's a it's a lot, isn't it? Oh, yes. It, there's so much involved with it. There's so many emotions because you think about the present tense, you think about the future tense, and you're thinking, oh, my God, what is what is going to happen? And, you know, how do you balance it? And there's so much that goes into it because there's guilt. You feel guilty as a parent that this is their lives. But then I do try to focus somewhat on the positives. And so I'm like, all right. So my kids have, you know, really good adaptability skills and resilience is a really important quality. So I I really like to focus on the strengths that it's given them in addition to the, the difficulties that they've had to face. It's very tricky. And I just, that's the thing about other people that I talk to is Mm -hmm. with rare disease or chronic illnesses Mm -hmm. that we understand one another. I mean, your experience, I can totally relate to in that sense of you're raising these kids and you want their lives to be as safe and healthy and wonderful as possible. But there's limitations and there's restrictions on what you can do. And I just think that it's helpful for other people to understand that that's actually normal. It's our normal. Right. And it's okay. And your kids can be okay. But it's a lot to process, I would say. Absolutely. It is a lot. You know, some of some of the challenge for me is is that balance, right, between, you know, we don't want to be overly, overly positive, but we can recognize the positives, right? Like recognize those qualities that are being built there, the upside of, of things, you know, the, the fun times that we're able to have, the things that we still can do, even though it looks so different than the way that it was before. And, right, big capital letters, A-N-D, and it's hard. And there are lots of emotions that are difficult and challenging, and we can't ignore that. And I guess I should say, you know, we can't, I'm speaking personally, I don't feel like it's the best for me or for my family to pretend like those aren't there, right? Like, we've got to acknowledge those emotions, we've got to be able to get them out and have that vulnerability and be able to, you know, let them see that there are hard, difficult times. And it's okay to say that it's okay to feel that it's okay to show that we're going to cry. Sometimes we're going to be mad sometimes. And we can still be grateful for the things that we have to be grateful for as well. But um, those aren't mutually exclusive, I guess, would would be one way to think of it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that is one of the things that you show those emotions because you're, you know, the the extreme experiences of that, that you're having those emotions and to try to keep them hidden is not helpful at all to anybody. And, you know, it's a lot to process because it's my heart that has a lot of the issues. There's been times that my heart was really, really tricky and I'm in the hospital hooked up to machines and I'm, I'm supposed to be calm as possible, but I'm looking at my daughter thinking, oh my God, 
what is she, if this poor child, what does she have to deal with? But I can't let myself get upset because then my heart rate's going to go all over the place. And she's seeing me trying to manage all this. And, you know, the fact that she can identify it and be like, it's okay. You're all right. It's going to be okay. And she's reassuring me. And I think that they have a gamut of emotions as do I, and they have seen everything. They have seen everything for me. Well, I so often come back to the work of Dr. Mark Brackett, and he, he talks about give, you know, permission to feel is the, the work that I've really grasped onto. And, you know, he, he talks about, you know, you got to give yourself permission to feel and also give others permission to feel as well. And I think you just really summed that up very nicely. And you've got that good perspective of recognizing that you're going through these things and seeing that your kids are going through these things at once. And as we've, you know, we've said multiple times as the theme, it's just hard. <laughs> it's so, it's so challenging. It's so difficult. Yet, I think recognizing these things and then even talking about it, you know, it, it's helpful for me to talk through things with you like this, Mary, and with others that I've been able to speak with and, and, uh, you know, making some of those connections. Cause like you mentioned before that, it's really helpful to be able to find other people who can relate to these, you know, these specific type conversations and know, you know, what it's like. We don't know exactly what it's like for each other, but we can relate enough, right? And know, you know, at least in the same ballpark of what's happening and how how challenging it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that brings me up to something I wanted to share with you, which you are part of as well, or maybe I wanted to share it with your audience is the Patient Advocacy Summit, because the Patient Advocacy Summit is coming up. It's in September, for between September 12th and the 14th. It's in San Diego, and it's in person, but it's also virtual. And I went for the first time in 2019 as a patient. And the first thing I noticed about that experience was there's tons of information and lots of interesting things going on, but it was the experience with the people to be surrounded by a large group of people who understand what you're going through, what you've been through and what you're facing, because they too have also the similar experience. There's a different type of understanding and relating to one another, which I think is really helpful for patients and parents to connect with people on that level. So you feel like you're not alone. And even if these, you know, the hundreds of people don't become your best friends, you know that you're not the only one. There's people to reach out to. And there's a you know, community that has gone through this. To me, when I think about when I first attended and, you know, this event, it's heartbreaking to hear these stories because there's oh but always somebody who has a situation worse than yours and there's people who have a situation better than yours so you hear these stories and it's heartbreaking but it's also empowering and it feels comforting to know that there's others that understand your journey so that's one of the best things i find about the summit and, you know, other events that are for the, you know, rare disease or chronically ill community is just finding your people. 
Oh my gosh. I love that. Finding your people is so important. And it's one of the things that was so challenging for me at the beginning of my diagnostic odyssey, Mary, when my, my symptoms first started showing up and I had to start stepping away from work and ended up, you know, losing my career due to this rare disease. I was just alone. I was so isolated. And and that's why I finally jumped into the social media scene to try to see if I could connect with other folks and and build some community and exactly what you're saying there, find my people. And after I finally did that a little bit, one of the, one of the first few things that I heard from my friend, Nathan was, Hey, you gotta, you know, get out there. And, and when you go to some of these events, like the patient advocacy summit for, for global genes was like a specific thing that was, was talked about um, there. And, and from others, they mentioned it, it's going to make a big difference for you. It will change because it is finding and connecting with your people. So I'm really looking forward to the summit coming up next month. And I'm, you know, glad that you brought that up. And and really, that's what brought us together, Mary, was the connection through Global Genes, which I'm really appreciative and, and thankful of. Uh, we'll make sure to get the link for some information into the show notes so folks can click on that and, and check it out. The globalgenes.org website has all the information, but we'll put a, a specific link into the events page to have that available for everybody to go and check out. No, that would be great. And, you know, there's usually a couple of different tracks going on in this year because of demand. They have created the adult track because a lot of times when people are talking about rare disease, chronic illnesses, they're talking about pediatric diseases, which are very important and valid. Absolutely. But there hasn't been a lot of focus at some of these events focusing on the adult track. So that's what I'm really, really happy about that um, that focus is is being given. There's also a caregiver track, which again is another population that needs attention and awareness and skills and resources so much that could be there for them. And then there's skill building track, which also is very helpful for individuals and patient organizations to learn about you know, fundraising and um, how to create a organization. And there's each track, there's a little bit of something for everyone as a patient and also as somebody who is involved with global genes. I really appreciate the, the diversity of subjects and addressing some of those populations like the undiagnosed that's a huge population of people who are going through some challenges. They still don't have their diagnosis. I mean, we talked earlier about your diagnostic odyssey as well as mine. And there's so many people going through that and we know how difficult that is. And so there's some information about that. We have a great panel coming up about genetic testing and genetic counseling and learning about how to do that, how to access those types of services. There's also um, another section on legislative advocacy. If you get to that point where in your journey that you're ready to even do more, it would be great to be involved with legislative advocacy because that's the way that change is really created in the healthcare systems and the research. And so that's an important part of it. And there's also things about relationships and siblings. That's another audience that, you know, have to deal if one child has an illness, that sibling that is their experience is very unique as well. Yeah, there's so much. I could go on and on and on, but I would recommend (laughs) anybody checking out. Yeah, there's so much great information. 
yeah, I'm going to have to dial in and figure out where to be and where to go and how to get there's so much good stuff. I'm just going to not be able to contain myself. I don't think I got to pace myself for sure, as I have to do with my condition. But man, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to chat with you on one of the panels, Mary, you know, talking about some of these things we've discussed today, while, you know, parenting while you're a rare disease patient. And then I'll be able to discuss uh, some of my thoughts around mental health, which is a, a big component on one of those panels and do some podcasting as well. Hopefully connect with some other folks down there and a, a little humble brag, Mary. I'm, I'm also looking forward to the Rare Champions of Hope Awards because my daughter, Emma, is a, is a nominee for the Rising Stars uh, portion there due to her work raising funds for mitochondrial disease through what she founded another helping it's her way to kind of contribute back. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the whole event, but that's going to be a big, a big uh, exciting time as well. I'm so proud of her and, and the work that she's done. So boy, yeah, lots going on down in San Diego. Can't wait. Yeah, that's amazing. You got me with like all teary eyed now. I didn't know that about your daughter. Good for her. That's really impressive. And it's such a young age to be active and it gives that sense of, you know, ownership or empowerment that you know what these they're difficult situations and you lose a lot in your life when you have this you know when you have a rare disease or chronic illness you lose a lot but you gain different things and your daughter has gained that strength and that that vision in that sense to to work and think about those things and really take action i absolutely love that and uh I'm so proud of her. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah, she is. She is phenomenal. I'm going to have all sorts of stuff tugging at my heartstrings, Mary, as it as it so happens as well. The last work presentation that I was able to do was in San Diego. And at the time, I didn't know that was the last work presentation that I was going to do. I, you know, I was in the middle of that diagnostic journey, trying to figure out what was going on. I was presenting at this national conference that was down in San Diego. And, you know, then I I came home from that. And just a month or two later, I was on to short-term disability that transitioned to long-term disability that transitioned to no more work. And I was going, wait a second, I, this, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, like so many other instances in life. And I kind of thought that part of me was behind me, Mary. So this is a big personal kind of triumph for me as well to be able to be back in a venue where I'm going to be able to share some thoughts and, and ideas. It's a different field, right? I'm used to speaking in, in terms of the world of education, but you know, I guess this is education as some folks have helped me figure out just in a different avenue, right? Like through a different lens than I've had before. And so boy, for a myriad of reasons, I'm looking forward to it. I'll get to meet you and so many other wonderful folks that, that I've been able to come in contact with through, uh, through these last, you know, couple of years as I've, had my rare disease. And um, yeah, I boy, I appreciate all the work that you and your colleagues from Global Genes are doing to put this event on, because I think it's going to be just fantastic. I do too. And I love that this is somewhat coming full circle for you. You know, that for San Diego, it is like you've taken that whole experience and you're bringing it back as a different person, the different perspective, and you're still teaching and you're still, you know, connecting and in helping other people understand the, you know, the experience you have and being able to reach out and touch those people. And I think it's, I think it's really, really sweet. I love it. I'm so excited. 
Yes, I am too. Well, thank you. We kind of talked about your rare disease and the life that you've kind of lived and how that came into being. And you're still working, you know, you mentioned you're working with Global Genes now. One question that I always like to bring up and ask folks, you know, that that are navigating the the world of work and or advocacy for you both, right? Like, how do you how do you balance all of that with your life at home, um, you know, now and then if you even look back to when the when the girls were at home as well, any tips or pointers that you might have to offer up from your experiences? Yeah, I would say it's been a big shift because I everything I did before in my life was extremely physical. And switching to a life that is less physical was a difficult challenge on one part of it. But the other part was finding that balance of personal growth or personal contribution to help me feel valued in, in what I do. So I, that's part of the reason I got into the advocacy. And you know, I started advocating for with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. I worked at the Every Life Foundation for a couple of years. And so that helped me, in a sense, that fed me energy because I was able to contribute and feel positive about my value in the world because it's, I just couldn't stay home and do nothing. That was not me. And I know that some people don't have that ability because of their diseases. And it's, it's, you know, it's not for everyone, but I would say that you got to do something that's going to create, that's going to give you energy, that's going to feed you and take care of you, whatever it happens to be, whether it's meditation or walking or music or something. So I found the things that I value and which spoke to me. And I focused that. I disregard or really try to eliminate the parts of our lives that really don't need that focus and energy. I really took out a lot of the negative in my life and focused on the positive. And one of the best tips I have is schedule rest because I will go, 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 but I have to schedule in rest and I will do it at the summit as well. It's like, I'm looking at my schedule of where I have to be. And I'm like, no, I need to make sure that I sit down and just stop for a little bit. If not, you know, I'll go into a flare and that won't be helpful at all. So scheduling rest. And I've gone as far as having my Alexa, she's going to wake up now, having my Alexa set that timer to say, okay, for 30 minutes, sit down and just read something or watch a show or do something. So my biggest thing is rest and eating healthy, eating as, as healthy as you can take care of your body like a machine. You want to have, make sure that you have compassion for what your body is going through. So, you know, identifying that and then balancing the priorities and your priority is your health. And it can be tricky when you have kids because, you know, for for many of us, the kids are the first priority, but you got to shift that a little bit. You got to be like, no, I can't, I have to take care of myself so that I can be there for my children. Absolutely. Wonderful little pieces of advice there. Lots to consider for folks and and many takeaways. I, I sure appreciate that, Mary. So we'll, like I said, we'll make sure we get that website information for 
the Global Genes 2022 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit into the show notes. Anywhere else that you wanted to kind of plug or get out there, Mary? Anywhere else we can find you or any information that you might want to get out to folks that are listening? Well, anybody in Maryland, feel free to reach out to um, marylandrare.org. And anyone with sarcoidosis is also feel free to reach out to me. I'm easily accessible and through FSR or various other channels. But a lot of my time is put towards helping others with rare disease. I just feel like using my power for good. <laughs> so Yes, I love it. I love it, Mary, so much. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Wait, it's my pleasure, Mary. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss these important topics. I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure, you know, thankful that you did decide to to go that route and to advocate and to to help others to make those connections and do the work that you're doing through Global Genes, what you've done before through Every Life and Maryland Rare, you've got a lot going on. And I know you've helped countless others and their journeys, whether it's through one of those kind of more official forums or, or just being a friend or a, a person to, to lean on. It's, you know, all of those things are so needed. They're so necessary, so important. And I really appreciate it. So thanks for sharing your story, Mary. Take care. And I'll look forward to, to seeing you and all the other wonderful advocates and folks that are attending the upcoming Patient Advocacy Summit here in September. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. My pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you later, Mary. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way. <laughs>